Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and today's show is a very, very special one. You see, today's podcast features the fifth in a series of shows we've referred to as the Lessons from the Frontline series. We've talked about these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Frontline series focus on real-life, tough-to-tackle subjects that other industry professionals and regulators have faced on the front lines of our industry. Think of it like a fireside chat. Better yet, think of this type of podcast as your opportunity to sit down with an industry expert at your favorite winter lodge, grab a hot beverage, and just start talking about some of the most critical issues affecting the investment management industry. Today's topic is most definitely one of those critical issues in the investment management industry, namely how firms can address the issues and challenges associated with senior investors and investors with diminished capacity. To help guide us through today's conversation, we welcome in Richard Such. Whether it was in his experience as a partner at the Bressler Law Firm or in his public service now as the Enforcement and Investigations Chief for the New Jersey Bureau of Securities, Richard is the perfect individual to help guide us through what can be a very complicated and challenging issue for IA and BD firms everywhere. Back in 2019, the now SEC Division of Examinations conducted a seniors-focused sweep of over 200 investment advisors with significant senior exposure. That was defined as either a large percentage of accounts held by senior investors or a large percentage of a firm's assets under management being held by seniors. The exams assessed advisors' policies, procedures, and practices addressing clients who were 62 years or older. The exams focused on, one, if clients provided trust and contacts, two, how advisors responded to concerns over diminished capacity, three, practices for handling requests to change beneficiaries, and four, training that was provided to employees focused on spotting signs of financial exploitation. The SEC observed that one-third to one-half of the firms examined had some or all of these policies. That means that at least half didn't have any of these policies. Some of some firms adopted written policies and procedures, others were informal or unwritten. And on the critical issue of training client-facing personnel, however, the SEC found that most firms had not provided senior or vulnerable investor training issues to their employees. If this seems surprising, it probably should be. Retail investors, specifically seniors and those saving for retirement, has been at the top of the Division of Examinations priority list for many years now. Moreover, the SEC, FINRA, and as we'll find out later today from Rich, NASA, not that NASA, the North American Securities Administrators Association, have been hard at work to help provide resources and training to firms everywhere. Despite this, a report issued in September of 2021 by NASA showed that nearly 59% of investment advisors did not have policies or procedures in place for addressing the financial exploitation of seniors or vulnerable persons. Former NASA President and West Virginia Senior Deputy Commissioner of Securities, Lisa Hopkins, stated, quote, our hope is that this data will foster greater and earlier detection and reporting of suspected financial exploitation of older Americans. Similarly, we hope to accomplish the same thing in our conversation 
today. And so without further ado, Mr. Richard Such. As we move into the interview section of today's show, I am incredibly pleased to welcome in Richard Such. Rich has served in public and private roles in the law for more than 30 years, starting his career as a county prosecutor where he tried approximately 40 criminal cases to verdict by the age of 30 alone. Currently, he serves as the Enforcement and Investigations Chief for the New Jersey Bureau of Securities, where his unit handles investigations and enforcement actions related to securities law violations, uh, whether by investment advisors, broker-dealers, or unregistered persons. He oversees the administration of financial exploitation reports filed in the state pursuant to New Jersey's new SAFE Act, a report and hold law that requires reports by financial services firms whenever exploitation is suspected. Uh, that specific oversight is something that's going to come in very handy today. Uh, he is also a member of NASA's At-Risk Investor Committee, which devotes its time to improving industry and regulatory efforts to help protect vulnerable and at-risk investors. Prior to his role with the state of New Jersey, Rich was a senior partner and member of the Securities Litigation Group at Bressler. There, he represented national and regional banks, broker-dealers, and investment advisors, and counseled them with respect to their legal and regulatory obligations. He was one of the firm's lead trial attorneys, and he helped coordinate the defense of some of the largest securities arbitration cases in the country. Rich has prepared and defended scores of witnesses called to give on-the-record interviews before the SEC, FINRA, and state regulators. And we welcome in all of that fantastic experience to talk to us today about what is one of the most important topics in our industry today, senior investors and at-risk investors and how to prevent the exploitation of, of this you know, specific segment of the investor populace. Uh, Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I thought we might get started just by doing, you know, a little bit of background on on you specifically. Obviously, you, uh, you know, given the the kind of bio we we just went through, have really had a widespread, you know, career in a variety of of different areas, both on on the private and on the public side. And so I guess just you know at the start, what what was uh, what was kind of your jumpstart? How, how did you get involved in the securities, legal and compliance industry? So as any regulator would, before I get started, I have to qualify um, my appearance here and say that, of course, I'm not speaking for the attorney general uh, of my state, nor for the New Jersey Bureau of Securities, the agency where I work. I'm expressing my own opinions uh, about the issues we're about to discuss. You know, when I went to law school, I always wanted to be a trial lawyer. And that's pretty much, in some way or another, that's what I've done my entire career. Uh, after I left the prosecutor's office, I went into private practice. And uh, because of my prosecutorial background, most of the uh, assignments I got tied into fraud fact patterns. Uh, I did environmental and contamination cases, I did criminal cases, and really what ended up changing the course of my career was <clears throat> in the early 1990s, I was simultaneously defending a, an SEC investigation of a regional firm in New Jersey for bond markups and sales practices, uh, and simultaneously prosecuting a claim involving a firm client who had put $4.5 million into Stratton Oakmont 
uh, the firm that was later featured, The Wolf of Wall Street, and the $4.5 million was gone in two months. So as a result of you know, defending a five-year-long SEC case where there were 45 on the records and prosecuting the Stratton Oakmont case, you know, it just bit me. I, I love the financial services business. I love business in general. And so to be able to combine, you know, the wish for the fight in trials along with the financial services industry just really appealed to me. Yeah. Yeah. When when you said the name Stratton Oakmont, I thought, man, I feel like I know that name from somewhere. <laughs> that sounds that sounds familiar. Well, I guess maybe staying in that in that same universe, then obviously, you know, investor protection uh, would certainly be a, a key focus as it related to that particular matter. And, and certainly as your own professional life has evolved, it, uh, I think th this idea of investor protection has certainly become a focus in your career. When did that, I mean, like obviously you mentioned that that specific case and that that kind of it bit you and, and you got really interested, but what, when specifically did that move to maybe those, you know, those senior investors or those with diminished capacity, you know, at what point in your career did, did you kind of start to focus on uh, those investors who might be most vulnerable? So I would say from the very beginning, I was keeping an eye on victims, their profiles, and how they could be exploited. We we definitely had cases when I was a prosecutor that were, you know, quote unquote, white collar type crimes. Uh, and obviously, bad actors are looking to exploit people that are vulnerable, uh, whether it's because of their age or they have some, you know, other vulnerability. So, and, and frankly, even when I was defending the financial services business, it's not like, you know, the financial services business at the high end, which is where I was, you know, representing people, their coin is good relationships with investors that last a long time. So, you know, I felt even when I was in the defense business that we were trying to keep an eye and make sure that the systems ran properly so that people would not be taken advantage of. The seniors fact pattern uh, emerged, I think, probably the early 2000s. And, and when it did, uh, I was immediately drawn to it, really because, you know, you could see generationally the baby boomers were going to be aging out of the workforce, which they are now. I'm at the tail end of the baby boom. Uh, and that so-called silver tsunami of an enormous populace with huge uh, wealth, unprecedented wealth. Uh, we're getting to a point, depending on the age and the circumstances, where you had to keep an eye out and make sure that people were not uh, being exploited based on vulnerability. I, I think it's actually in the DNA of the business in general, whether you're on the claimants, the defense, the regulatory side, it, it's a problem that's been around uh, forever. So, but, you know, the, I'll say the formal uh, march to try to do things which we're going to talk about that make it easier for firms to pr protect investors and make it better for regulators uh, to protect investors. That's really the last 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really one, you know, thank you for that, that additional context. And I, I really uh, like what you had to say at, at the end in that this is a, a, a problem or a challenge, I guess the, the, the challenge to help protect these types of investors 
has been it's been around for a long time for forever in some in some respects but but specifically i think the focus on it from the industry and then right the additional resources that have been brought to bear by regulators of all shapes and sizes and and even those in the private sector like you mentioned have really you know come about in the last 15 you know 15 20 years or so and it's actually it's one of those resources in particular that I know you, you may have had a little bit of a hand in and that I, I'd love to uh, talk about with our audience, because I think for, for many folks, th this may be familiar to them. For others, um, uh, you know, for other listeners on our show, it may be new and something that certainly they could benefit from. Talk to me a little bit about the Bressler map and and you know why it was created and, and kind of how you know what what is its exact purpose? So. You know, we formed uh, the Bressler Seniors Group because we saw which way uh, the train was running uh, with regulation uh, at the federal, state, and uh, FINRA levels. And in in that context, you know, I, I have the benefit of having made a lot of good friends uh, in the business over the years. And I'd actually like to give props uh, here to Tom Miroslaw, who's at Morgan Stanley, who, you know, he, and, and there are several others, everybody knows who the people are, but Tom is definitely one of the people. And he and I were talking about the so-called mosaic of laws that existed around the country with, with two basic branches, adult protective services. Every state had a law uh, that applies to exploitation to, of older people, but it's usually about their personal safety, whether their home, is secure, whether they are physically okay. Some states have exploitation regarding finances in their laws. But then there's been a, a new group of laws that have developed with the advent of NASA's Model Act uh, on report and hold, so to speak. So it gives firms the ability, when they suspect exploitation, to make a report to regulatory agencies and APS without fear of recrimination about the report itself so that regulators can get involved and intervene and help the firms navigate from here to there when they think that somebody's being exploited because they're elder or vulnerable. The problem is this is not a federally mandated program. So it's state by state and every state, although they largely adopted you know, NASA's model act, there are nuances state to state. So we thought it would be good for the industry, for regulators, for any of the stakeholders looking at you know where they have to report and how they have to report to put together the map and make it something that everyone could use and it took a ton of time i you and i you know talked in the run-up to this i mean we used a quarter million dollars of attorney time to put that map together and everybody that i know is pleased with it uh and it stays current and it's probably not the last resort, but it's definitely a good first resort to get a bearing on what you need to do when you need to report in a specific state where the investor lives, because that's what governs the law. It's not where the investment advisor or broker dealer is. It's where the investor determines the outcome. What is really interesting, and you know, you you mentioned it before, is the amount of you know attention and resources that have really come about in the last 15 years in this area of, you know, senior investors and those with diminished capacity. 
And, you know, the Bressler map is just an incredible resource. And for those that are, you know, wealth managers and other folks that uh, deal with that population of, of investors, I, I cannot commend that enough as something that you should absolutely, uh, you know, go to check out review and, and be able to, to help incorporate, you know, some of, of what's important in those uh, investors in, in the states in which they're domiciled. In addition to that, you haven't stopped there. Obviously, you know, given your, for, your more formal role with the state of New Jersey, you are touching uh, this, uh, you know, subject matter information all the time. But but you've also extended that into some, you know, volunteer efforts and other uh, uh, committees that you serve on with the North American Securities Administrators Association and their Senior Diminished Capacity Committee. Talk to me a little bit about. Uh, about the senior diminished capacity committee, you know, what, what is its mission and, and, um, and, you know, what is its, its mandate? So I love the NASA work. Uh, I was encouraged to do it by my boss, Chris Gerald. And the thing that's great about it is you, you really are getting, you know, there, there are 18 members of the committee. So there are 67 jurisdictions under NASA's umbrella. We've got representation of 18. And you just get to hear, you know, at least on a monthly basis, although the chair, Kristen Standerfer, and I talk a couple times a week uh, about what's going on in the field from a regulator standpoint. The committee is a, a board level committee, and so they have to set an agenda and goals. And every year we, you know, figure out five or six issues we think we can bite off and actually chew and be done with by the end of the year. And there are subcommittees that are tasked to take each of those issues forward. And in addition to that, we have our advisory council. There are 18 members of the advisory council and there are representatives from all the federal state uh, self-regulatory and industry stakeholders on that council. And we draw from them ideas on, you know, where are we going in the future? What have we learned from the past? We meet with them. We check in with them. And so, you know, we have a ton of help from a lot of quarters. And we try to set goals that we think need to be set in order to advance the interests of the cause, which is mitigating. We're never going to eliminate it mitigating the exploitation of elder and vulnerable investors. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's great background. And thank you, too, for providing some context on kind of the, the makeup of the committee. Uh, another you know, particular resource that I think NASA has pushed out in the last few years that has been an incredible difference maker in this area is the Model Act to protect vulnerable adults from financial exploitation. M many people, e even if they don't even, they, they may not even know it, <laughs> but many of the listeners on this call have probably seen some form or version of this. Um, I think it's been adopted in 35 states-ish, maybe a couple more provinces and territories. But you know, talk to me a little bit about the, the Model Act its overall effect, you know, and 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 then you know specifically, 
I think it'd be great to hear from you, you know, about some of the biggest benefits that in general, right, as states have adopted this and tailored it to their own, you know, particular jurisdictions, what what these new report and hold laws have have done in, in the space. So I'll, I'll answer your questions in, in reverse order. The the report and hold laws have been a smashing success in every state that's adopted them. Investors are pleased with the mechanics. Virtually nobody is complaining about how they're being administered by the industry. The bigger problem is getting all states to be aware of the need for and adopt some form of the report and hold law. And as for the Model Act's role in getting us to, as you say, 35 states, I think there are right around 35 states that either had a law before, there were one or two, and who adopted either in whole or in primary part the Model Act since it uh, issued in 2016. I have no problem extolling the virtue of the Model Act because I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't there when it was formed, uh, but it was formed as a result of a two-year process of deliberation from you know all quarters about what needed to be done to give the industry a tool to make it easier for them to report exploitation when they suspected it. And that's what it does. And, you know, the specifics of how it does it are different, as I noted, state to state. Some states are mandatory report when you see exploitation. Some store states are not. Some states allow transactional holds so they can stop a, a sale of a security. Some states only permit disbursement holds, so no money going out of the account. And, and the time lengths for how long a hold can be put on a transaction while, you know, agencies investigate, the industry investigates the fact pattern, they vary state to state as well. But it, it's safe to say that the Model Act is the mother of at least 80% of what's happened in the legislation since it issued in 2016. And it was absolutely a game changer. You could easily see that it uh, allowed FINRA to feel comfortable uh, to issue its new rules when it did. Uh, that allowed uh, broker-dealers to hold disbursements, encouraging people to get trusted contact persons and so forth. All of it, and, and by the way, no, no one agency can do this. So, you know, NASA did what it did and is still doing things. FINRA does what it does and it's still doing things. The SEC does what it does and they're still doing things. I mean, if ever there were a uh, an appropriate uh, place to say that it takes a village. It's in this space because all the constituents need to be uh, in this together to mitigate the fraud. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I appreciate that additional insight at the end about the collaboration that's going on, you know, between the regulators and the industry here, because at the end of the day, um, I think, you know, uh, rallying behind protecting our senior investors and those investors with diminished capacity is something that we 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 can all get behind and we should all get behind. And, and it benefits everybody uh, when when we work together to help mitigate the issues involved in this problem. And that that's actually you know what? That's a good transition. So, of, uh, oh, go ahead. Chris. Yeah. yeah. No, let me just jump in. But before I came to regulation, I, I said to people, including regulators, that in my time in the business, I have never seen an issue where the interests of all people involved 
are so closely aligned. I mean, obviously, as regulators, we have a duty to make sure that markets run fairly, that firms, you know, do what they should be doing. But in the in the senior, elder, vulnerable protection space, the industry, the regulators, the investors, all other stakeholders have the exact same interest because nobody wants to see somebody get exploited. So it is a collaboration and it is a team. I know we regulate the industry, but it is we need to hear from the industry in order to know how to help investors. And and that's what's going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is funny too. I mean, um, you know, I'll I'll just add I'll even add to that, you know, that that, that even the most cynical uh, business-minded folks can rally behind it in the sense of, you know, providing for the proper protection of senior investors. You, you, you talked about this recently, you know, in our lead up that it's not, you know, it's not just a compliance issue. It's a business issue in the sense of, you know, people don't want those assets going out into the hands of bad actors and going outside the door. Uh, and so there's so many different reasons in, and th- that should be at the end of the list because of all the other items that we've already talked about, again, wanting to protect markets and protect our, our most vulnerable investors. So with so many states adopting of the model act or a version of it, and then, th- then now you've got all these additional regulations out there that many of the firms are, our listeners are at or, or help provide counsel to, uh, would need to abide by, you know, now then, then it becomes incumbent on the firms, right. To develop really good policies and procedures in the space and really good internal controls just in your own anecdotal experience, right? What, what are some of the most, uh, what are some of the most effective internal controls you you've seen in this area and, and other kind of mitigation strategies? So, I'll get to that in a second, but this reminds me that there was a recent NASA survey of state registered investment advisors that tried to figure out exactly where they were on implementing training and education and reporting chains in order to prevent and detect uh, elder vulnerable exploitation. I want to say that you know 40 or 50 percent of the investment advisory firms surveyed, had not really changed their way of doing business, you know, in the past five years. So if I were to say there's one thing that really needs to get out there, it's it's education for the investors and for the firms about the importance of this uh, structure to be put around their business, which again, to me, is not really anything new. It's just really kind of see something, say something, and having a reporting mechanism, the core concepts of a proper uh, system in a firm would be training the client-facing people. So, you know, they see if they seem to be losing their fastball, having a clear line of reporting up. And I know in smaller firms, uh, it's not going to be a complicated structure, but in larger firms, it can be. And obviously, you know, I deal with all sorts of firms, but centralization of the reporting system, particularly in larger firms, is, is a core concept uh, that needs to be adhered to because things do slip through the cracks. And as you and I discussed, you know, talking about this program, these things have a timeline with a, with a, with a start and a finish in about 30 days, maybe 45. 
So people have to act quickly. And if they don't, money will go out the door. And that's not a good thing because once it's gone, it's gone. So to me, training client facing, educating firms and the investors about the risks of exploitation, the, the latest schemes, and then having a centralized reporting system with a smart person at the switch that knows when to you know, report into us and adult protective services are the core concepts. Yeah, that, that is that is excellent, excellent advice for our listeners in, in a very practical way. You know, if you're able to build out those three things that you just mentioned, you're going to have in place, again, a, a, a good foundation there, right, to help make sure you've got the, the proper control set up to help you know, hopefully prevent the problem from ever occurring, but certainly mitigate potential issues. And, and just to follow up on the report that you had mentioned <clears throat> regarding some of the, the state investment advisor exams and the report that was issued in September by, by NASA showed that almost 59% of investment advisors did not have policies or procedures in place for addressing the financial exploitation of seniors or vulnerable persons. And so you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there has been really positive momentum in this space, but you know, as, as my dad used to say all the time, there's, there's still a lot of wood to chop here. There's no doubt. And as, and as Will Farrell would say, this is not rocket surgery. <laughs> uh, you know, NASA, NASA just put out with the SEC and FINRA, a training module. Uh, that, you know, in essence, mimics what I used to do when I was in private practice to train firms about what they needed to know and would qualify firms if they follow the module uh, to get immunity under the Senior Safe Act, which is the only federal legislation, and would, would likely qualify them in states that have specific training requirements. New Mexico is an example. So, you know, you don't have to, you know, invent this from whole cloth. You can go to NASA's website, the SEC and FINRA's too, and see the training module on how to prevent and detect elder vulnerable exploitation. Yeah. No, th thank you for mentioning that. And, and just for the benefit of our listeners, when we drop the podcast, we will make sure to have that, that link available wherever you find your podcast as well. Um, so that for those folks that are looking to get some of that guidance, you, you'd be able to, to, to get there pretty easily. Another thing that I wanted to, to talk about that relates to how ultimately these issues or problems play out, right? And we've talked about, you know, what the states require, obviously the adoption of a lot of these report and hold laws have been incredibly beneficial. Then we talked about a little bit from the firm perspective, okay, what internal controls and, and uh, you know, stuff can they build into their compliance programs to help prevent and, and mitigate the issue. But ultimately, we, you know, as, as I'm sure you are very familiar, given your role with the state of New Jersey, you, we, we can't prevent, right, all of the bad things from happening. And sometimes there are unfortunate situations that occur. And so I guess a question for you would be, you know, on the enforcement side of this space, how is that playing out right now? You know, is that playing out inside of of like, you know, examinations of firms and their policies or is it more playing out in, 
you know, you, you identify a situation and that leads to some additional investigations of other, of other areas. I would say it's both. I'm not on the exam side, but obviously Stephen Bouchard in New Jersey is our exams person. Uh, and he was uh, involved with that data input on, you know, how firms are doing with setting up programs. I think there's going to be at some point, it, it hasn't happened to my knowledge so far, but at some point, firms that have the resources and are not doing what they should be doing in terms of training, uh, reporting and so forth, you know, someone is going to get caught up in that. But right now, as far as I can tell, the enforcement side of this is really just finding frauds in the fact patterns themselves and less about whether the firm, you know, quote unquote, properly reported. You know, there's definitely cases we see where FAs have gone off the rails, uh, either into criminal or clear regulatory violations. Uh, and, and obviously, supervision issues can come up in that context. But, you know, our focus in the safe unit, and from what I understand from talking to other regulators doing what we are, is that, you know, obviously, the number one concern is trying to help the investor involved. And then also, just as a corollary of that, really, you can pull things out of these cases that can result in a, in a fairly significant uh, enforcement action. One example that jumps to mind is, uh, and I credit Joe Rotunda in Texas on this, they, they had a senior fact pattern involving somebody who was being exploited and encouraged to buy silver. And uh, that led to a multi-state NASA prosecution along with the CFTC. And uh, it was the it, it was an enormous case. I want to say it was like a half a billion dollars total involved in fraud. And it, it, it all revolved around metals that were part of one senior investor claim. Most frequently, what we see in the senior exploitation fact pattern is somebody close to the investor family member, guardian, power of attorney, taking advantage of their relationship of trust with those people. And so, you know, a lot of times the frustration is like our bureau wouldn't have jurisdiction over a family squabble. Obviously, we know a nephew is taking advantage or a grandson is taking advantage. And, and there are securities involved in the sense that some security may be liquidated and then a bank check issues to a nephew, but it's not a securities fraud per se. And, you know, and obviously also there's an embarrassment factor and a shame factor for the investor that's been exploited, plus a family relationship or guardian relationship factor. And they, they frequently, you don't have a cooperating victim. So enforcement, you know, capital E enforcement is really not I don't see primary here. Capital I investor, capital P protection is. Yeah. No, that's, uh, again, I, I really appreciate the commentary on that because I think it's helpful for folks to, again, continue to just help frame this issue and, and be able to, as much as they can, uh, do exactly what you, you mentioned earlier as one of the best techniques to help mitigate against the issue and 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 uh, uh foster effective internal controls which is to train and educate your your firm employees 
So, and, and you know, Pat, Patrick, you know, and we talked about this. I mean, I, I grew up, uh, I mean, I grew up basically trying to prove that somebody's portfolio was suitable. That was my job. And, and the only way you can know that the portfolio is suitable is if you know the customer and their assets and their needs, income, growth, whatever it may be, their timeline, their risk tolerance, and you need to know them too. And, you know, people talk on the phone, whether it's quarterly, twice a year or annually, what they need to be aware of when people hit a certain age point is things are going to get worse, not better with their ability to make sound financial decisions. You know, I'm, I'm almost 60. They say that the brain is a wasting asset after age 55. So, you know, I'm better now than I will be at 65 and I'm not as good as I was five years ago. Um, and that's just something people need to be generally aware of. And, and, you know, whether it's their assistant or, you know, some supervisor that meets uh, and hasn't seen the person for a couple of years, but seeing changes in behavior, appearance, so forth is the best defense against problems like we're talking about right now. Yeah. Again, another great, another great point that, you know, hopefully many of the listeners of our show can take back to their respective firms that, you know, continue to hit the same piano key over and over again, right? That like making sure to have consistent touches with clients so that you have an opportunity to help detect some of the physical and mental, you know, signals, you know, red flags that, that you're describing and, and get ahead of these issues again, hopefully to be in a, in a way to help prevent them from ever happening or certainly mitigate them quickly after they've started to occur. It's just, it's so important. How, how do you see this area developing in, in the future, you know, both from, from an industry side, I suppose, and, and then from a legal and compliance side? So I am an optimist, but things are going to get worse. The people with the most money are getting older, and at some point, they just are not going to be able to make financial decisions for themselves as they did when they were younger, just that's period, full stop. So, you know, unless people think about generational change, including other people in the equation, making sure the future is mapped out, uh, even with all that, not everybody has the sophistication to think that way. Uh, and things are going to get much worse just because the amount of money in, in, in the age group that is aging out of the system. Having said that, there definitely is a way forward for us. We're, we're not going to be able to eliminate the problem. All we can do is everything we can do, and that is by being vigilant and collaborative and cooperative, share information, agency to agency, federal, state, self-regulatory industry all the stakeholders, make sure that new studies and ideas that are, are being published about brain health, about new techniques for bad actors to use are you know made public. And everybody's got to get in the boat together and start rowing for the true north, which is everything we can do. We can't stop it, but we can slow it. And now is the time to do that for sure. That's excellent feedback. And I, I think... You point out what is something that I don't necessarily think people 
it's not that they they uh, uh, don't understand or that they you know it's just that they don't take the time to think about the fact that right the kind of as folks get older as investors get older some of that ability that they would naturally have to detect when someone's trying to mislead them you know to detect that uh when when somebody is trying to sell them a bill of goods some of that capacity goes down with age then you look at the fact that those are also the investors that are typically going to have a lot of money saved away and think about the fact that right for the better part of the last 12 to 15 years uh maybe a little less than that maybe 10 10 years or so we've been in a, a bull market for most of it right i mean think of and so you've got all of these things that lead to as you say the the problem only continuing to get bigger and it just only further you know uh, highlights the the importance of firms uh, t- taking the time to properly uh, uh, again build build in the controls into their compliance programs. If there's one message that you could provide those firms as it relates to senior exploitation, what would it be? Train your client-facing people and be skeptical about people's ability to navigate. Almost like you're dealing with a new client that you're not sure you want to do business with. People are going to be very reluctant. I, I analogize it to trying to take the car keys from your parents when it's time for them to stop driving. You know, people can play golf for a long time. People can play tennis for a long time. People can make financial decisions for a long time. But at some point, that time stops. And having the conversation about taking the car keys away is better done sooner than later before there's any even perception. Uh, that they need to have the car keys taken away. They need to be, it needs to be thought of almost like estate planning or insurance planning. It's an insurance policy against problems in the future. So trying, training people to deal with their clients, you know, in their forties and fifties about what is down the road and how you're trying to help them to avoid exploitation, the schemes for which are getting more and more sophisticated is just good business. And then, you know, educating the investors you know, point them to things we publish, publish, you know, their own materials. There's things coming out virtually every day about, you know, uh, scams, for example, two easy tips. The IRS is never going to call you. And if somebody wants you to complete a financial transaction with a gift card, hang up the phone. But it's amazing how many people fall for things like this. So, you know, education for investors, training for the frontline people, and trusting, I think, us, the regulators, that we're trying to help. Uh, you should make a report. If you say something, say something, and we'll help you. That's that's what we're trying to do. Give you the tools you need to stop exploitation of an elderable, elder or vulnerable investor. Well, I would certainly say when it comes to education of the industry, to many of our listeners uh, and, and you know other firms in the space, and when it comes to helping to foster, I think, a spirit of collaboration among all the stakeholders, which you you talked about earlier, right? Between, you know, investors and obviously uh, investor protection firms and their ability to continue to to serve those investors and then the regulators that are helping to keep up market integrity and obviously look out for the, I mean, one way that you are doing that, and I mean, on a very personal level, 
is with your podcast. Obviously, look, we're we're a biased audience here, uh, but 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 we are certainly fans of the podcast medium as a great way to help connect with people and to be able to share knowledge and to um, help make the industry better. One of the mottos of this particular podcast is make it better than the way you found it. Talk to us about your podcast and and um, and some of the topics that that you're able to cover there. Well, I hate to correct my kind host. I think you're cooler than me. You have a podcast. This is a webcast. I don't know if a webcast can even be made into a podcast, but put that aside. In my in our in our role uh, at the Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee, we knew we had a great roster of talent with the Advisory Council, and we thought that what we should do is leverage the knowledge between our committee and the advisory council and all the people they know to create a platform for messages to be heard that might not otherwise be voiced. So we, we do have a webcast. It is, it is dropping February 3rd. It's an hour long approximately. And it's the theme for the show is cognitive uh, health and the implications uh, for investors. We've got uh, FINRA Foundation uh, speaking on a paper on how loneliness impacts cognition. Uh, we've got an academic, Pamela Teaster, who's going to talk about how women in particular tend to be victimized more than men, not least because they live longer and perceptions about women being easier to take advantage of, right or wrong. And finally, we've got a very interesting study we'll be talking about on an important topic, and that is the designation of a trusted contact person and how to increase the take rate to get investors to agree to designate a trusted contact person in case of emergency or financial exploitation. The idea here is, you know, open tent, big ideas, smart people talking. I'm the lucky host. Uh, we're all very excited about it. And uh, the first episode is February 3rd. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, will make sure to put a, a pin in their calendar for that. I, I know I will and really look forward to that content. Uh, Rich, I, I, again, I, this has been a, a tremendous conversation. Really appreciate all of the incredibly valuable insights today. We're going to we're going to let you uh, uh, go here, but we're going to ask maybe one one last fun question for you a little bit more, uh, a little bit softer on the top as far as the topics we, we've discussed today. You know, we are in the holiday season right now. Winter is uh, upon us. Folks are going to have a lot of time uh, maybe indoors in the next couple months. What's either your favorite show or movie that you have enjoyed recently or or maybe a, a favorite book that, that you've been able to dig into? So this is easy. I don't know how many people know this, but you need to buy Milburn Deli Sloppy Joes on a Sunday and make a fire and watch Godfather and Godfather 2 back to back. Perfect. That sounds sounds like I've got next Saturday all planned out then. <laughs> That's great. Well, again, Rich, thank you so much uh, uh, for joining us today. Really appreciate uh, your, your thoughts here um, and look forward to having you back on the show here at some point soon. Thanks so much. 
And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Richard Such, for coming on today's show and sharing his invaluable insights into how firms can best address senior investors and clients with diminished capacity. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at ComplianceBot. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 